0: we're going to be starting a sermon series on Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11, which I I truly don't think I can overstate the importance of these few verses, this, this passage. The theological implications of this passage are astonishing. And the application to our personal lives is humbling. In fact, it's a perfect passage to be preaching through, Uh, during december i didn't plan this it's by god's grace that we are entering into this uh, month and we're going to be spending time in this passage it's the perfect passage because it teaches the theology behind the incarnation really the theology behind why we celebrate christmas in the first place the theology behind the incarnation from start to end from glory to glory and it's even written this passage in, in a poetic way it's constructed in a beautiful way, so much so that, that many scholars, if not most scholars, believe that this is probably an early church hymn that Paul is using, a, a hymn that, that even predates the book of Ephesians itself. In other words, when Paul was writing this letter to the church at Philippi, he included this hymn that was probably well known to everyone that read the letter, a hymn that was sung in the early church. Now, this is a guess, but how this is constructed, it seems to be that way. So let me start this morning by just reading it once again. If you would look at verse 5, it says this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. And here's where the hymn starts, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself just amazing just amazing just to read it is is humbling now today's sermon is just going to be an introduction to this passage this passage is so important it's so deep it's so profound that that it deserves a a sermon just introducing it here's my goal today that by the end of the sermon you would feel the weightiness of this passage the the depth the glory the importance of of this passage and really uh, the depth and weightiness of the incarnation itself again just a perfect passage as we head into the christmas season and i want to do this by going back to the old testament and i want to go way back if you would turn with me to genesis chapter 4 genesis chapter as you're turning there, let me just give you the context. I think most of us know the context of Genesis chapter 4, but, but let me walk you through it anyways. In, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, and he, he does this just by speaking. Day 1, he, he speaks light into existence. Day 2, he stretches out the heavens. Day 3, earth and vegetations. Day 4, the sun, moon, and the stars. Day 5, uh, swarms and swarms of living creatures. Day 6, land, animals, and finally creates man the pinnacle of god's creation and on day 7 he rests not because he was tired but instead to enjoy his creation and god's creation was good in fact genesis 1:31 says god saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and this was true until genesis chapter 3 where we see the first sin, the original sin Where Adam and Eve sinned in the garden And the world that God created became a fallen world A world full of evil, decay, and death But Genesis 3 doesn't end without hope As we know, as we've preached before a number of times that God gave Adam and Eve a promise within the curse of Satan God promised a future seed A seed of the woman ascended an offspring, God promised that this seed would crush the serpent's head and really reverse the effects of the fall. And from this point on, from Genesis 3 on, Scripture anticipates this coming of this seed that would crush the serpent's head. And this is why Eve, in chapter 4, is so excited when she gives birth to Look at verse one, Genesis chapter four, verse one. We're going to be jumping around a lot in scripture, and I would just encourage you to follow along the best you can in your own scripture. Uh, Genesis four, verse one says this: Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she ke- uh, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, "I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord." Now in Hebrew, there's excitement in Eve's words when she says, "I have gotten a man with the help." Of the Lord, Why is Eve so excited? Well, simply, she thought Cain was the seed, the seed that was promised. He would be the one that would crush the serpent's head. He would redeem mankind. He would be the chosen one. So she was excited, but obviously she was wrong. We know the story. Cain had a brother, Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel. Cain murdered Abel. Within one chapter of the fall, within one generation of sin, we have the first murder, and we see the effects of a fallen world. And there has been murder, death, and wars ever since. But once again, all is not lost. Cain wasn't the seed, he was a murderer. Abel was dead, so he wasn't the seed. But look at verse 25, Genesis 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she, this is Eve, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring or another seed. We see that excitement again. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enoch listen to this at that time this is the birth of seth and enosh at that time people began to call upon the name of the lord now this is important i know i've talked about this a lot but but we need to understand whenever you see the the word lord capital letters l o r d all in capital letters in the old testament this is the name of god the name of the lord this is yahweh now i'll explain why the word lord is used there later but as for now during the time of these births men started to call upon the name of the lord god's personal You to think about that for a second Yahweh is not a title it's not like doctor or professor or, or master it's not a title it, it's God's personal name and I want you to think about that I have learned that using people's name is important it shows intimacy in fact when I have a conversation with someone I try to use that person's name or, or I've learned when I write an email which is very impersonal emails one of the ways I can make it personal is, is just using that person's name it shows a closeness or intimacy in the middle of the email if I say something like Jim or, or Tom or Sally there's a closeness or intimacy that I am getting across through an email There's something about knowing a person's name that brings intimacy. Let me give you another example. I I can just about guarantee that no doctor is ever called doctor at home by their wife. Many of you call me pastor or Pastor Nathan out of respect, and and it's appropriate. It's very humbling on my part, just so you know. But guess what? Sarah doesn't call me pastor. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. God's personal name. There's a connection here that we see with God's name in this coming seed. The seed of the woman. And as you go throughout Genesis, you see this connection over and over and over again. We see this connection in the story of Noah. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 5, or chapter 6, verse 5. As you're turning there, let me just remind you when you see the word Lord with all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D, that's the name of God, that's Yahweh. Just pay attention to that, verses 5 through 8, I'm just going to read them is 6 verses 5 it says the Lord Yahweh the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord again Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in, to his heart so the Lord said Yahweh said I will bolt out man whom I have created from the face of the land Man and animals and creepy things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Yahweh. God's personal name used over and over again in these few verses. If you would now turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. This is after the flood. this in verse 18 the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem Ham and Japheth Ham was the father of Canaan these three were the sons of Noah and from these people and from these um, the people of the whole earth were dispersed if you would skip down to verse 26 it says this he that's Noah he also said listen to this blessed be Yahweh. Bless be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. Verse twenty-six, we see Noah worshiping God by using His name. Bless be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh. It's the name of God. The name of God, in fact, is used well over a hundred times in the Book of Genesis. Connected to all the patriarchs, it's connected to Abraham. Genesis 15, 7 says this, and he, that's God, and he said to Abraham, said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God's name is connected to Isaac. Genesis 26, verse 24 says this, and the Lord, that's Yahweh, and Yahweh appeared to him, that's Isaac the same night and said I am the God of Abraham your father fear not for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servants Abraham's sake so he that's Isaac built an altar there and listen called upon the name of the Lord this is just like Genesis chapter 4 Isaac called upon the name of Yahweh the name the lord god's name is connected to jacob if you would turn to genesis 32 32 verse 6 6 says this and the messengers returned to Jacob saying we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him in other words there's a whole army coming towards you Jacob then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed he divided up the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels and into two camps thinking if Esau comes to the One camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now listen to this, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, capital L O R D, O Yahweh. He is using God's personal name. Just like Seth and Enosh, just like Isaac. What is he doing here? He's calling upon the name of the Lord. He's calling upon the name of the Lord. He's calling upon the name Yahweh. And look what God does. Skip down to verse twenty-seven or twenty-four. Verse twenty-four it says this. And Jacob was left alone. Again, he's discouraged. He's afraid. There's this army coming towards him. And, and Jacob was left alone. And And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. The man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he, this this man, said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, obviously, there's more going on with this story than, than just a wrestling match find out later on that this man is actually god look at verse 27 it says this and he this man he said to him what is your name and he said jacob then he said your name shall no longer be called jacob but israel for you have striven with god and with men and have prevailed Israel means something like struggles with God. That's what the name means. Jacob's name was changed to Israel by God to reflect, really, Jacob's life. And in fact, to reflect Jacob's character. Jacob was always, if you, if you look at the story of his life, from, from day one, from birth on, he was always wrestling and struggling. In fact, he came out holding on to his brother's heel. Listen, names in Scripture often reflect some characteristic of that person's life. Isaac means laughter. That's because Sarah laughed when she heard that she was going to become pregnant in her old age. Abraham means the father of many nations, because Abraham became the father of many nations. Israel means something like struggles with God. Now, again, this is somewhat of a weird passage, But here's what I think is going on. God is promising Jacob that that Jacob will prevail in all of his struggles as long as he keeps pursuing God, holding on to God in faith, wrestling with God. Again, look at verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. Jacob asked this man for his name but he again this is God said why is it that you ask my name and there he blessed him so Jacob called the name of the place Penel saying for I have seen God face to face and yet my life Now again, this is an interesting passage and I'm sure you have many questions as do I but, but there's one thing I want you to think about. Why did Jacob ask God for his name? I think Jacob was probably trying to figure out who this man was and names reveal truths about people especially in scripture. Here's what I think. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob They all knew the name of the Lord, Yahweh, but they didn't know the meaning of the name. Remember, Israel means something like struggles with God. Isaac means laughter. Abraham means the father of many nations. But but what does Yahweh mean? They knew the name, but they didn't know the meaning. It's not revealed in the book of Genesis. Genesis. God's name is just used in the book of Genesis. It's not till Exodus that God's name is revealed, and that's where we need to go to next. So if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Now, I know we know this, and we've been in Exodus, but I want to take what we learned in Exodus this morning, briefly go through it, and apply that to where we're going. Let me just give you the context of genesis or exodus chapter three this is hundreds of years after abraham isaac and jacob israel is a great nation but they are in slavery god hears their cry and god meets moses in a burning bush and tells him tells moses to go to the people of israel to tell israel that god is about to save them but moses anticipates a question that he thinks the israelites are going to ask and it's this verse 13 Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, listen to this, What is his name? That's the same exact question Jacob asked. What is his name? So Moses asked, What shall I say to them? Are you seeing a theme here? book of genesis and exodus right throughout the pentateuch at least up to this point right at the bare minimum god's name is important it's extremely important it's a theme that runs throughout the pentateuch and i would claim it's a a theme that runs throughout the entire old testament moses anticipates a question moses knows that the israelites are going to want to know god's name now Why Moses anticipates this question, I have my guesses, but listen to God's response. He gives three statements. This is the response to to his name. Verse 14, he says this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is the second statement, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In verse 15 the third statement god god also said to moses say this to the people of israel yahweh the lord capital l o r d yahweh the god of your fathers the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob has sent me to you just like abraham isaac and jacob who all have meanings connected to their names in exodus 3 14 through 15 God starts To reveal to Moses the meaning connected To his name I am I am And God says this At the end of verse 15 This is my name Forever And thus I am to be remembered throughout All generations Now I want you to think about this Yahweh is God's proper name. It's related to the verb I am in Hebrew, which I'm sure all of us know. It it has very similar letters. It's it's why God says in the very first statement, I am who I am. But the, the verb I am in Hebrew has a continual future aspect to it. Meaning it could be translated, I will be who I will be. Now, I I think I am is the correct translation, but but there's also a future aspect to God's name. In fact, if I could paraphrase God's response to Moses, it would be something like this. Moses, go to the Israelites and say, Yahweh, the great I am, Yahweh has sent me to you, and he's about to show you what it means that he is Yahweh. God is going to give meaning. He's going to fill in the meaning of his name, Yahweh. And he does this in the rest of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus gives meaning to the name of God. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time going through the narrative of Exodus because we spent two years in Exodus, but but the book of Exodus gives meaning to God's name. And I think that's important. Exodus 7 through 12, the ten plagues, are all attacks on on Egypt's false deities, on Egypt's false gods? The Nile turning into blood, frogs, flies, the livestock dying, boils, hail, uh, locusts, darkness, and finally the death of the firstborn is a direct attack on Pharaoh claiming to be deity. Again, all attacks on false deities, which reveals the name of God, reveals that Yahweh is powerful, just, holy. Almighty and truly is the one and only God in all the earth. That there is no other God except Yahweh. Again, God is revealing the meaning of His name. That's the point. In fact, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. chapter 9, verse 14, this is a message from God to Pharaoh. It's a message that God gives to Moses to give to Pharaoh, but it is a message from God directly to Pharaoh. Verse 14 says this, for this time I, that's Yahweh, I will will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth for 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is why the exodus happened. So that God's name, Yahweh, would be proclaimed in in all the earth. And the narrative continues. In Exodus 12, we see the final plague on Egypt, the death of the firstborn. Israel is finally let go. In Exodus 14, Israel crosses the Red Sea and the Egyptian army follows them and is crushed behind them. And, And I want you to think about that. The most powerful and feared army in the world is crushed under the sea nation of slaves escape on the other side again god is revealing his name he's revealing how powerful yahweh truly is how how powerful how mighty he just crushed the egyptian army with the sea and this message was heard clearly by the nations by the way in fact years later in jericho a prostitute named rahab said this Joshua chapter 2 verse 9 I know that the Lord capital L-O-R-D she knows God's name Yahweh I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us this pagan prostitute knows about Yahweh and this pagan nation is terrified of him and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. After the Red Sea crossing, the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, struck fear in the surrounding nations. It struck fear in the enemies. God is revealing his name he's revealing his name after the red sea israel is in the wilderness they end up at mount sinai where god reveals himself in the in a way that he hadn't revealed himself up to this point maybe since creation at mount sinai he descends on the mountain in fire and moses describes what what he sees as a massive earthquake as a A massive thunderstorm, as a volcano erupting, as the sounds of trumpet getting louder and louder. And Moses is just using extreme language. Makes you even wonder if Moses just can't describe what he's seeing, so he just takes the the most massive events he could think of and says, that's what it is. And Yahweh gives Israel ten commandments with a thunderous voice, his own thunderous voice. and, And listen... There's no mistake about it. It was terrifying. The Israelites were terrified by the revelation of God at Mount Sinai. So I would say this, at least up to this point in scripture, the meaning of Yahweh is terrifying. The holiness of God, majesty of God. It's terrifying. And Israel had firsthand experience of it. Yet, amazingly, it didn't stop them from sinning. In Exodus 32, while Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God, Israel breaks the first and second commandment by making a golden calf and worshiping it. It was a horrific sin, which I spent, spent a ton of time just describing how bad this sin was. But I want you to think about it. What has God revealed about his name so far? He's holy. He's just. He's wrathful. Think about the plagues on Egypt. Think about the fire on the mountain. I mean, the name of God struck terror in the surrounding nations. The the presence of God struck terror in the Israelites. Therefore, what does this mean for... Israel a sin filled people a people that sin so horribly I mean think about that how is God going to respond to this horrific sin therefore Moses as Israel's mediator he he wants to know how is this going to work God how is this going to work he pleads with Yahweh he says please show me your ways that I may know you Finish what you started at the burning bush. Tell me what the meaning of Yahweh is. I want to know your character. I want to know your nature. I want to know your name. Because he wants to know how a holy God could dwell in the midst of a sin-filled people. We know the story. God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he's going to let piece of his glory pass before Moses because otherwise Moses would die and he's going to proclaim his name to Moses. If you would, turn to Exodus 34, verse 5. Once again, I want you to pay attention to the the word Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. This is God's personal name, Yahweh. And it's the focus of this passage. Verse 5 says that the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Name of the Lord. Now, as we went through Exodus, I said this a number of times. Verses six and seven are the most theologically significant verses in the entire Old Testament. There is no clearer definition of the name of God in the Old Testament than these two verses. Let me say this. God's glory is going to pass before Moses. Moses is going to see something, and he's not going to even attempt to describe it. All he's going to write down for us, remember Moses is the author of Exodus, is what God proclaimed when he passed by. Because that's what's important. The proclamation of God's name. God finally reveals what Yahweh truly means. In verse 6 he says this, The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, Listen, the the glory of God was so bright, so blinding, that the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face when he came down the mountains. Just the afterglow of the glory of God, they couldn't even look at. But it was the proclamation of God's name that Moses writes down. The book of Exodus, there's no description whatsoever what he saw. What's important is what God proclaimed. And guess what? We are blessed to have it today. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth. This is the revelation of God's name. And and it becomes absolutely foundational to the rest of of the Old Testament. It's the revelation of of the name Yahweh, and we see it referred to as foundational again throughout the entire Old Testament. Let me just give you some examples. Numbers 14, 18 says this The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Jeremiah thirty two, eighteen says this, You, God, is crying out to God, you, God, slow or uh, show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilty of the father to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name, whose name is Yahweh is the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah knows what God's name means. He knows what it is, but he also knows what it means. Joel 2.13 says this, And rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel knows that you can turn to God That God is gracious and merciful. He he knows this because of the revelation of God's name. But it means that he is Yahweh. In fact, in a few verses later, he says this. This is Joel chapter 2, verse 32. He says this, "And, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, of Yahweh, will be saved. Jonah that whoever called upon the name the name of God whoever called upon Yahweh would be saved Jonah 4 verse 2 says this and he prayed to the Lord and said oh Lord is not this what I said when I yet when I was yet in my country that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew Jonah knows something about God For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How did Jonah know this? Exodus 34, the revelation of God's name. Nahum 1, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Nehemiah 9, verse 17, they refused to obey and and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return them their slavery in Egypt, but you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. How does he know this? How does he know that God's ready to forgive? The revelation of his name. Over and over and over again, the Old Testament authors, point back to the name of the Lord to understand the character of God. And when they do, they see grace and mercy. Exodus is all about the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Exodus is the revelation of God's name. It teaches us what it means that God is Yahweh. Therefore, in Exodus, there should be no surprise that the name Yahweh is extremely important. It's used 398 times in the book of Exodus. But listen, it's not just Exodus. God's name is found throughout the Old Testament. It's used 165 times in the book of Genesis. Deuteronomy, it's used 550 times. Psalms, it's used 695 times. Jeremiah, 700. foundational to the Old Testament, to to understand who God is. Yahweh, God's name, is used well over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Almost 7,000 times. Think of it this way. God is love. You know how many times the Bible says God is love? Three times. All in one say it once, but God is called Lord thousands and thousands of times. God is called Yahweh well over 6,000 times. This leads to a question. If the name Yahweh is used well over 6,000 times in the Old Testament, how many times is it used? hallelujah that last part yeah, is a shortened way of saying Yahweh hallelujah is used four times in Revelation that's it the name Yahweh is not used once now think about that for how important God's name is in the Old Testament why is it not used in the New? remember god told moses this in exodus 3 verse 15 this is my name forever and thus i i am to be remembered throughout all generations what about the new testament what about us i've read this before in fact i've preached similar sermons to this one twice before but let me read a portion of Austin Soros dissertation On the name of God Austin is one of our CCW's uh, He's an Old Testament scholar So let me just read it This is what he says about Israel's use of God's name In the Old Testament Israel was certainly seeing the name Yahweh Praying the name, blessing and cursing Using the name And greeting one another using the full name of Yahweh However This correct and healthy practice i mean, God gave the name to be This correct and healthy practice began to shrink and wither around the time that Israel went into exile in Babylon. The Jews began to think that the word Yahweh was so holy that it should be protected from misuse. Some began to ascribe an unhealthy amount of reverence to the word rather than to the one to whom the word refers. Interestingly, many Jews stopped pronouncing it. Only pronounced it in sacred places and on special religious holidays In other words, and this shouldn't be surprising The Israelites got legalistic about how they used God's name This mood began to be shared by the priests, the religious leaders, and most of the Jewish people There are reports in Jewish literature that the divine name was only being said on the day of atonement And only at the temple practice dominated for years decades and centuries until something unbelievable happened the full pronunciation of the divine name was lost the jews stopped passing down the knowledge of the proper name until somehow no one remembered exactly what was the precise word they used to refer to their god we only have four hebrew consonants y-h-w-h that's english obviously but the equivalent y-h-w-h yahweh is a guess of how to pronounce god's name how could this happen well i want you to think about this ancient hebrew they didn't write out the vowels they only wrote out the consonants and and you can do this. If you took English and only write out the consonants and you didn't put the vowels in there, and you wrote out a sentence, you could read it. It's almost like the vowels are in there because we just know where they should go. Right? Well, in ancient Hebrew, they didn't write out the vowels. It was only passed down verbally, the vowels. Therefore, if you stop pronouncing a word after a, a long amount of time, you're going to lose the pronunciation of that word because you're not passing down the sounds, the vowels that are to go... between. it wasn't passed down verbally and it isn't written down all we have for god's name is four consonants y-h-w-h the vowels are guesses the pronunciation yahweh is just a guess this leads to a question what is written in the original hebrew manuscripts? well the answer is just the letters y-h-w-h y-h-w-h but traditionally when jews read the old testament out loud They pronounced the word Adonai when they came across those four letters. Adonai means Lord or Master. That's why most of your Old Testament Bibles in English have the word Lord in the place of God's name. It's just following that tradition of the Jews. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Jesus and the apostles used a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And I've referred to the Septuagint a number of times. The original Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek, and Jesus and the apostles used the the Greek Old Testament often, the Septuagint. Well, guess what Greek word is used in the Septuagint to replace YHWH? It's the Greek word Kyrios, which means Lord or Master. Now, guess what word is used more than any other word in the New Testament to describe Jesus? Kyrios. And listen, this brings us back to where we began. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 2. start in verse 9 it says this therefore God has highly exalted him that's Jesus and bestowed on him listen to this the name that is above every name what name's above every name remember Paul's a Jew He's someone that knew the Old Testament better than any of us. To Paul, what name is above every name? Let me just say this. It's not Jesus. Yahweh. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus. This is important. Jesus in Greek is in the genitive form. It's not in the dative form. What's that mean? It's not at the name, comma, Jesus. Jesus. Or it's not at the name, comma, that is Jesus. Jesus isn't the name being talked about. It's the name of Jesus. Well, what name? Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, Lord. It should be capital L-O-R-D. Jesus is Lord. Paul is pointing back to the name of God, Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And that means all of the meaning of God's name that we see in the Old Testament. All of the meaning of God's name in the Old Testament has been bestowed on Jesus, poured into Jesus. In other words, Jesus is... A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. Listen, there's a weightiness to our passage. This is just an introduction. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is one of the most theologically rich passages in all of Scripture. I've just been overwhelmed studying this passage this week. I, there's just books and books written on these few verses. Jesus Christ is Yahweh is, a, is an astonishing statement, and it's not the only astonishing statement found in Remember what God said in Exodus 3. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Philippians 2 teaches us that Yahweh, the great I Am of Exodus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, came to earth in the form of a servant, that word means slave, a human, a baby in a manger, and eventually went to the cross to die for our sins so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, that's a weighty truth. And it's the truth that Philippians 2, 5 through 11, so clearly teaches. Let me end today by saying this. As we walk through this passage in the coming weeks, which is a perfect passage for for Christmas, as we walk through this passage in the the coming weeks, I I hope it just prepares our hearts to worship Jesus in, in a profound and humbling way as we approach Christmas. Great Yahweh, the I Am of the Old Testament, the name that's above every name, the God of the Exodus, humbled him. truths that have been proclaimed from your word through me Lord are humbling and how could the God who created everything how could the God who, who, who could have just justly wiped mankind off the face of the earth as soon as Adam sinned and servant, as a slave, be born as a baby, and then die on the cross. God, I know these truths, especially for us that grew up in the church, Lord, are just, are just, have been there from, from day one as we've grown up, or, or we've heard them so many times, as, as we celebrate Christmas again every year, Lord, and we think about the incarnation, and it's just something that that is kind of in the background, Lord. Help help bring it to our to our face, just like Moses, as your glory passed by him, that, that we cannot look away. But see your glory in, in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. And how amazing it is that you would come, Lord. I pray for anyone this morning that hasn't put their faith in you, Lord do that right now, that they would cry out to you for salvation in your son's beautiful name.